Welcome everybody. This is episode 12 of the Watchama Talks. My name is Jolt Varga. This, uh, this is the information what I left out so far from the first 11 episodes. <laughs> but now it's time to introduce myself. And our guest today is uh, Heis Spohr. Welcome. Thank welcome, you. Welcome, first of all. Uh, you are an alumnus of Wageningen University, right? Yeah. And you spent quite a lot of time in India uh, dealing with uh, social entrepreneurship. You, were, you are a serial entrepreneur and you were trying to solve problems around the supply chain with, with the, in the cotton industry. And uh, nowadays you are a resident of uh, Auroville. I have, to, I have to read this because it's a long introduction of this place. Auroville is a township in India that was set up around 50 years ago. And Auroville wants to be the universal town where men and women of all countries are able to live in peace and progressive harmony above all creeds and politics and all nationalities. The purpose of Auroville is to realize human unity. Correct. Sounds amazing. <laughs> and a very current project of yours is the Green Silk Road with the aim to create a travel corridor on land between India and Europe while encouraging cultural interaction, alternative trade, ecological and intercultural education. In short, creating positive impact while traveling. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this is just a tiny fraction what Thais uh, has done in the last 15-20 uh, years, but I had to cherry pick somehow to fit in the time. Maybe next time we can talk about other stuff too. So let's go back in time a bit. You are from Amsterdam, right? Yes. Uh, your family has a farming background no, or an anything? Not at all. No. Not at all? My family uh, are into um, documentary making and movies. Ah, cool. And, nice. um, yeah, my dad's an academic and my mom was into movies. Ah, nice, nice. Because that's why I'm, the question is how a young guy uh, ends up in Wageningen from Amsterdam, you know, uh, to study organic agriculture and fair trade. So yes. what was, what was the, your, in, in your mind at that time? Um, right. Um, yeah, it's very unusual because, um, people in Amsterdam believe that the universe revolves around Amsterdam and um, <clears throat> I had no idea about Wageningen um, until I went to India so I went to India when I was 18 straight out of high school and uh, then I learned about the relevance of agriculture and the importance of agriculture um, as well as the, the complexities of rural development um, so I was in Rajasthan, where there are very big gender issues, you know, men and women, um, uh, the exploitation and the discrimination of, of women is huge. And then there are caste issues, yeah. um, and then there is a whole range of complexity, both in terms of, um, of water and land and, um, yeah, social economic issues. So I realized that this is a um, a situation that if I want to do something meaningful, I need to have a lot more knowledge about these systems mm -hmm. and how they how they work. So uh, that's what brought me to Wageningen. 
Um, it's, um, it's a very international place. You know, it has a kind of a cosmopolitan um, perspective, and yet it's very grounded. You know, yeah. its food is finally uh, needs to be brought to the table, yeah. and uh, and there's also an opportunity to connect with nature. Um, not that it always happens, but a lot of agriculturalists are uh, very anthropocentric and they believe that they can control yeah. um, nature and create um, food independently. But there are enough people here that, uh, that do stay connected to, to the soil and whatnot. And, and uh, it not just, I think, what we study, but also how we live. So when I was in Wageningen, we lived in... Uh, in Trovendal, where we met yeah, yesterday, yeah. and um, yeah, that was the first time that I actually uh, lived in a place where we could grow some of our own food, and we had animals, and we learned how yeah. to slaughter chickens, and yeah. Um, so yeah, very hands-on um, upbringing or education. Uh, and I remember, like, why agriculture? So. When I was in high school and we were thinking about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I thought of becoming a doctor. Most of my friends are doctors, lawyers, and so forth. And then I was like, ah, but if you're a doctor, you cure people, and then they get sick again um, if the rest of their environment is not healthy. So why yeah. don't I work on the, the yeah. basic uh, of you know, health, which is healthy food, which yeah. comes from a healthy soil? So this was a little uh, abstract reasoning because I had no experience. Yeah, and but then I went to, to India to test this assumption. To put it together in your mind when you are 18, it's quite impressive, I think. Uh, for me, it, it took a while when I figured out how important food is. Uh, mm. But uh, uh, kudos, yeah, it's <laughs> nice. It has been already 15 years since you graduated from Wageningen. Uh, I guess it's not the first time when you, when you got back to, to visit. Uh, do you see any changes uh, and you have any insights uh, how Wageningen changed uh, since you were a student here? What do you want to share? Mm, um, it's difficult to say really because I haven't except yesterday we did yeah. this event in, uh, in yeah. Druvendal and Druvendal seems very similar yeah. to when I was there. Um, uh, I haven't been in any of the institutional <laughs> areas or yeah. classrooms yeah. or whatnot. I just see lots of new buildings yeah. um, and I got lost. And uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, the artifacts have changed. Um, but I mean, I, I, I spoke a little bit with um, some friends who are working at the academic yeah. um, side of things and they basically mentioned about the rat race of publications in, in mm. specific journals um, which have very little to do with the advancement of knowledge and have a lot to do with, with academic politics. Yeah. I was also very involved in academic politics yeah. when I was here, so that seems to also be the yeah. same. Um, and, um, but I think what's, what is, uh, what's positive is that there seems to be still very internationally oriented uh, culture and especially so I just came overland from India to three Iran Turkey Hungary etc etc and I think this um, kind of cross-pollination between cultures is 
extremely important and we tend to take it for granted and yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's great to see that it's, it's the norm you know here it doesn't mm. really matter where you come yeah. from uh, it's kind of expected yeah. that you are from somewhere else yeah. and um, and you bring a complementary perspective yeah. yeah and because everybody has their own story their own way of agriculture or own way of uh, seeing food and uh, it should be somehow put together somewhere to have some some bigger picture where everybody has their own uh, own truths and own rights. Mm. So, but you kind of already answered uh, the second question. Why did you go to India? So you had already a fascination towards India when you were a, a teenager. Mm, yes. So and after, or maybe during wagoning, uh, you went back a, a couple of times, or. Um. Well, actually, I went to India before I came to wagoning. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that really planted a very strong seed um, I think it's common you see also among students in Wageningen the first you know faraway country they go to they they have a very mm. special connection so for some it's in Latin America some Africa and for me it was Asia or India um, and when you're 18 and you go to a completely different world where you have to completely reinvent yourself it's um it's a transformative experience yeah. um so for me it's yeah it's part of my identity mm. um you know um yeah i i speak hindi um and um i'm still very um kind of subconsciously looking for being accepted in Mm. Uh, in India as a country yeah. um, as I, a local yes yeah. as a local yeah. Yeah. exactly and uh, it's it's something that is like a natural impulse right? if 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 you go as a as a foreigner to a to a new area you try yeah. to blend in and you yeah. you know you, you don't want to be the other you want to be yeah. <laughs> yeah. from there and accepted as indigenous um, and uh, yeah, I still have that strong connection. Um, I don't know whether it's really about India. Um, I, I, I can't. I had only one life, so you yeah. know, it, it yeah. happened to be India where I went when I was eighteen. If it yeah. might have been Cuba, I might have been in there. Yeah. Um, but I think this is the reason why I went back. Then later, all kinds of other reasons came. So yeah. my wife actually really wanted to go to Latin America. Hmm. And when we first went to India 15 years ago, we had a kind of deal. We said, fine, whoever gets the first contract will go to that continent and then mm. we'll swap. Yeah, mm. The next job will be in the other continent. Mm. And 15 years later, we're still in <laughs> India. Um, but halfway, we, we did go to Brazil to yeah. see, oh, maybe we could also live here. Yeah. And then one of the reasons why we didn't stay there is because we realized that there's so much work to be done in India. You know, it's, it's just huge. Everything about it is huge. Yeah. The problems are huge. The opportunities for solutions are huge. Um, and we felt that that was different in, in Brazil. Like if they were talking about a small scale farmer, it was still a farmer who had like two hectares of land. Yeah. Talk about a small scale farmer in India. It's like, a, you know, 0.5 acres of land. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
and uh, so there's this this every day you know there's this sense of urgency um, of doing something relevant in uh, in India and I think, I think it's exciting mm. it's one of the things that keep us there yeah and uh, from the first moment I, I, I mean you you study you study fair trade but uh, the entrepreneurship side of it was in, in you uh, from the from the beginning or how did social entrepreneurship uh, come to your pass right um, actually when I was in Rajasthan um, uh, it came naturally I was staying with um, a farmer his name is Indadan and he is my mentor and my teacher on a lot of areas and um, one of the things he was saying is that you know, we need to be independent we cannot wait for the government to give us something um, and we don't like to ask for charity we want to be um, uh, how do you say that not self-sufficient but we want to earn our own means um, yeah. to achieve our goals and um, yeah that's what um, entrepreneurship um, does no it, it helps you look for opportunities and um, uh, you have also the responsibility about yourself you don't you are not a victim of the situation but yes. you can take the action and there are tools for that yeah and it's exactly. often overlooked and uh, they are, people are waiting and then blaming the right. other parties yes 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 yeah. and I guess from the beginning maybe it's also a, a Dutch um, uh, attitude. I think the Dutch are very practical, um, sometimes pragmatic, you know, yeah. uh, to the extent of not being very having a lot of moral <laughs> fiber. But um, I think a, a, a positive side of that is looking for things that work. Yeah. Um, and this is something that uh, you could call an entrepreneurial attitude. You know, yeah. you, you know, in lean yeah. startup land. Um, yeah. You have your minimum viable product, and you test, and you test, and you know yeah. what works is the truth. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of an approach that uh, uh, I think works regardless whether you whether you are structured as a company or as an NGO or yeah. as a, anything else. Kind of solution-oriented mindset yes. from the core, because yes. I see also many times that uh, okay. I also feel sorry for the farmers, and it's like a, I didn't know before I come to 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 Wageningen, and it's a universal thing. I thought this is just a Hungarian agriculture, and I think most of the small farmers they think that oh, in other countries it's different, but right. it's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the whole narrative of uh, small farmers is, uh, for example, in Hungary. Yeah, but now I know that in also other countries, it's created like. A, this very negative, very victim, uh, uh, victimized. Definitely. Uh, but in the reality, they have the power to change, but we have to let them know. Yeah, and it's also not so easy. I mean, there yeah, are I know, structural uh, yeah. limitations and yeah. power imbalances yeah. and whatnot, and it's a, the emancipation and empowerment is a process that, yeah, um, yeah it's a struggle. And I think often, I mean, the downside of entrepreneurship is often people ignore that side of it. No? They're like, everybody has the power to create through positive psychology their own utopia. Yeah. And this is yeah. not true. Yeah. You know, there is definitely the yeah. haves and the have-nots. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, social entrepreneurship as a as a term, um, I think it's it's very intriguing because it it has the potential to kind of capture uh, this recapture this language. Yeah. You know, why are we talking about social entrepreneurship? Shouldn't all entrepreneurship be social? You know, shouldn't all entrepreneurship be about looking for solutions for the many and not the few? Um, and uh, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting debate um, because if you try to to set yourself say that we are not commercial entrepreneurs, then you're kind of um, admitting that the purpose of commercial entrepreneurs is profit maximization yeah. and wealth concentration, and I would like to challenge that. You know, yeah. I would like to um, believe that all economies should ultimately be uh, for the benefit of the many. Yeah. And um, so this is why also I like the term you know, systempreneurship yeah. Uh, yeah. or uh, systemic change. And uh, often I think in social entrepreneurship scenes we're not ambitious enough. We try yeah. to you know, shift the deck chairs on the Titanic a little bit, and maybe, yeah. you know, uh, round off the hard edges of capitalism. Yeah. But to me, the true potential of social entrepreneurship is to change the game completely yeah. and prove a different paradigm and implement it and say, look, it works. Yeah, and and through this, this uh, if you educate it for to, to farmers, then they, they can also learn uh, basic uh, business uh, tools and methods which are totally foreign for them if I, if they just uh, stick to the produce more uh, mentality mm. and they are kind of then really uh, a victim of a system which just buys uh, yeah the the, pr the yeah the prices and everything is like uh, very uh, speculative yeah uh, can be but uh, the question is that uh, you had already ventures 15 years ago uh, in the supply chain management uh, mm. regarding to cotton mm. and I, I guess uh, with the corner of your eye you still have some overview what is happening mm. and in the last 15 years in technology for example a lot has happened mm. and my question is do you see any any change or any shift uh, in a bigger in, in a bigger picture that uh, it changed uh, to positive or negative uh, direction or it's kind as of... As a result of technology. Yeah, thing. for example, yeah, and time. <laughs> mm, well, I definitely think um, supply chain consciousness has improved a little bit. You know, the, there's this example of Mars where they suddenly realized, you know, the, not the, the planet, but mm -hmm. the chocolate company. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> It might be a link, I don't know. Um, but uh, they realized, that, oh shit, we depend on cocoa and the cocoa farmers in Ghana don't want to produce cocoa anymore and they don't want to send their kids to the field. So then we'll be out of raw materials and out of a business model. And then they started um, investing in their suppliers. And in Dutch you have this saying, that the walkeert het schip, um, which is like, you know, when you hit a, a wall, you're forced to turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure whether this consciousness has increased because of you know some wisdom or insight or whether it is just business as usual but we have to risk manage um, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm very optimistic about the speed of, uh, yeah. of change and yeah. how supply chains are organized. Like you said, 15 years ago, we already had this idea of participatory capitalism and you know, producers and consumers, they kind of disconnected through artificial means, but actually they want the same thing. Yeah. Um, yet I see very little institutional models that govern the value chains through a stakeholder, um, a real uh, stakeholder empowerment model. Actually, in Brazil, there was a really cool uh, brand called Justa Trama, where they had um, cotton growing co-ops and then a spinning co-op, a fabric co-op, a garmenting co-op, and then together they formed a brand. Mm. And so all the added value of the brand belonged to the entire value chain. Yeah, that's cool. And then based on a annual or biannual assessment, they would say, oh, this year we really need to invest in this part of the chain or yeah. that part of the chain. And it's not this, this unleveled playing field where everybody at the beginning of the chain always gets the last mm. paisa or the last mm. cents. Whatever is left, everybody is close to the consumer, creams off, creams off, creams off, and then whatever is left goes yeah. to the raw material producer. Yeah. This is an imbalance which is, I think, still uh, very dominant and very sad. Um, I don't know that technology has changed a lot of that. I think it has the potential to, um, for example, through blockchains and decentralized ledger systems and whatnot. There's this interesting podcast called uh, Future Thinkers, hmm. um, and um, they mention some of those those innovations. Um, I'm actually working with a project in India on uh, cotton value chains that is trying to not just have a one-way track and tra track and chase yeah. track and trace yeah. where the consumer can see the origin, yeah. but that also the producer can see the what happened to my product. Yeah. And who is my market actually? You know, who yeah. is buying my product? And what do they think about sustainability issue that we are facing as a chain? Um, I think this this two-level communication is not happening often enough. Yeah. Um, and also, we're not using the potential of technology to work with really micro-level narratives. Um, uh, I remember I was in uh, at one point in Tesco in the in the big supermarket. And they had all across the shop spaces. And I was working there with a lady who was into like sustainable sourcing. And I said, look, you could have like a producer story here and a producer story there next mm. to your jeans. Why not mm. a, a story of the farmer? And then you know, they ended up being a very bureaucratic organization and mm. they, they were not really entrepreneurial. Yeah. You know? They are like any large, uh, institution where it has to go through this committee and that committee and this department and that department and finally nothing happened. Yeah. So um, no, I don't see a landslide big shift in uh, supply chain management or governance. I still think there's this, uh, in, in Wageningen they call it the schizophrenia of the, of the citizen consumer. You know, As a citizen yeah. you vote for more animal welfare, as a consumer you go for the cheapest. Yeah. Um, and still, the, you know, we haven't apparently found ways to help consumers behave as citizens. Yeah. And I think the same is, is there for all links in the chain. You know, like you mentioned, just producers, they want to produce more and produce more. Whereas if you would ask, you know, what would you want for your children? They would not say like monocultures and less biodiversity. 
You know, yeah. you would say chirping birds and beautiful flowers. Yet, as a producer, they feel and they condition themselves that oh, I have to fit in the system, and this is what the system tells me to do. So, I still think we need a we need a revolution at all levels to break out of this mind limiting. Uh, it, it's it, it's about our our. I think our self-perception, how we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves as creators of these systems yeah. or as as cogs in the wheel? Yeah, yeah uh, I'm observing the, the food supply chain mostly, like the bigger picture. And what I see is that uh, it's just getting bigger and bigger and longer and longer. And all, all participants in between are getting their fair share somehow by packaging or transporting you know they they have their own business model and they are participating and they are they are good with that but on the two sides of the supply chain uh, actually the actual raw raw material uh, producers and the consumers they are a little bit um, yeah they they don't necessarily have the 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 best out of this uh, system like uh, the farmers are totally influenced because of the the huge price uh, mm -hmm. manipulations around the world and the consumers are yeah they don't really know uh, what they buy mm -hmm. or this labeling is also like very confusing mm -hmm. and uh, in that sense especially with food i would really focus on uh, local local mm -hmm. solutions and kind of uh, shortening these uh, these supply chains mm. because then the manipulation is also much less or the yeah. mm. so it's interesting there's a great case um, I just mentioned uh, Justa Trama in Brazil in yeah. India we've got Just Change yeah. and Just Change is um, uh, founded by a guy called Stan Takakera and he also coined this phrase participatory capitalism and what they've done is they've designed an institutional governance of their value chain where producers and consumers come together and also um, fix the cash flow challenge. You know, the problem often yeah. if you try to bring together producers and consumers is that the producer needs money at the time of harvest, yeah. but the consumer buys throughout the year. Yeah. And so who pays you know, <laughs> the in-between? Yeah. In this case, what they did is they had three parties that uh, came together in a governance model and you have to have at least two hats. Mm. So you cannot be only a producer or only a consumer or only an investor. Mm. If you're a producer member, you have to also either consume or invest. Mm. So I think it's really smart because it avoids this kind of polarization yeah. then at the boardroom level where you have these three yeah. different factions. Yeah. Um, and you know, everybody is, is, yeah. is one of both. Empathy designed in the system yes. in the core. It sounds yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's that's what I also see that uh, technologically we are so far advanced that the uh, social innovation uh, should somehow uh, follow up a bit uh, because there are so many solutions and we are still like kind of uh, uh, rigidly uh, like crippling on the uh, on, on the problems. Mm. So. I learned also that yeah. in Wageningen that though we are a technical university and we all trained as engineers, yeah. you know, generally the, the main issue is human behavior and yeah. social systems. Yeah. You spent uh, most like 10 years already in India when you went to Oroville or you nah, since 2010 are you a member of 
Oroville? Yeah, so I, I came there 15 years ago, and at first I was like, nah, I don't want to stay here. Ah, okay, so, so you visited them. Inward looking. Yeah. Um, and then I went to work in uh, you know, the rest of India for seven mm. years, and then eight years ago I came back. Mm. To Oroville. Yeah. To Oroville, yeah. yeah. Cool. And then you became a uh, resident? Uh, it took one year to, to, be, to get the residency? Generally that's the yeah. process, yeah. So you can come, anybody who wants to join Oroville, yeah. <laughs> here's my marketing pitch. You can come for three months as a volunteer, and then if you're serious, you can um, go back to your home country, get a special type of visa, yeah. and, and then you come for, well, for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh. But this one year that you're mentioning is kind of a probation period. Yeah. So maybe it's a year, maybe it's something, in our case it was two or maybe more than two years. Um, during that process you are called a newcomer. Yeah. and then you are vetted by the community, but it's also about you vetting the community. Mm. Like, do I really want to commit to this? Because it's a big jump, you know? Yeah. The, once you really take the plunge, um, it, uh, it kind of takes over your life. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a big decision. Yeah, I, I tried to uh, quote uh, the Oroville's website uh, in the beginning, but uh, do you have a one-liner how you can uh, explain what Oroville is? Um, well, for, for the scene of startups, you could say it's an incubator. Yeah. Um, it's a, you could say it's a makerspace, <laughs> a fab lab. Um, and what we're trying to fabricate is a new human humanity, uh, yeah. a new species. So we're, we're participating in our own evolution. Well. Um, and we, we are our own lab rats. You know? yeah, we yeah. design the experiment and then we live it. Yeah. So we are we are working a lot on ourselves, um, both individually and collectively. Yeah. You know, on these systems that uh, it's one of the reasons why I came back to Oroville is because I realized that the, the crux of the matter is there. You know, we need to work on on mindsets and paradigms and and social design that kind of reproduces behavior that none of us individually want. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's an experimental city. Yeah, yeah. I looked up uh, some of the of the videos, what is uh, already shared on YouTube and Vimeo. And uh, they were talking about uh, the collective and the individual. And uh, for example, related to the education about uh, progressiveness or the or the static uh, status I think all of this uh, should find some some balance uh, because for example I was also uh, thinking about that uh, that imagine 50 or 100 years ago the the craftsmanship uh, they were you know, they were reaching a certain level of uh, development and they were already happy if they could just hand it over at the same level how they how they learned in 30 40 years and they were happy if they would able to conserve that knowledge and uh, they were because of technology maybe they were not even uh, hoping to progress that much but just to conserve and then we are talking all the time about innovation mm. technologically but mm. socially we are not innovating so mm. there is always a balance uh, uh, should be fine mm. and do you see because 
for me how you presented uh, Auroville or the people who I met uh, yesterday or who I see on the videos I see or I feel somehow similarities with the Wageningen community in general do you see any any common characteristics of the people or the mindset in, in general if you compare the two community or the feelings that you had or have uh, mm, mm. I think um, you can have various experiences in in Wageningen. I chose to have quite a collective uh, experience yeah. so I always lived in spaces shared with many other people you know yeah. where I like to cook together and do yeah. the dishes together and have a kind of this collective lifestyle so that's very similar and I think the connection with uh, with nature is also quite powerful in both um, in Orville it's not necessarily by design I believe I think it, it's more by necessity so people started planting trees 50 years ago because there was no shade mm. and they couldn't do anything with the soil yeah. and then a forest you know emerged and right now a lot of it is thick jungle mm. um, and now we have all these lifestyles which are very very green yeah. um, but philosophically speaking um, there is a lot of anthropocentric uh, thinking in mm. uh, uh, in Orville but I mean same for for Wageningen you yeah. know? Um, I think right now the dominant paradigm in Wageningen with Louise Fresco who used to be one of our teachers um, you know, it's not very deep ecology uh, mm. centric, yeah. it's I think very um, anthropocentric yeah. and more of a control paradigm. I remember yeah. we, were, we had this, uh, there was a teacher Hans Schiere and he taught us a lot about systems thinking and his summary was that we need to shift from a control paradigm to a yeah. participation paradigm. I think that's a very deep transformation. Um, and actually, um, I don't know, I don't see it happening here, but I'm also not sure whether it's happening enough in, uh, in Oroville. Um, otherwise, parallels, hmm, I don't know. I think what, there's a big difference in terms of the mandate. You know, this is uh, it's a city. We can't just overhaul the way that we do elections here in Wageningen yeah, yeah. and, uh, and property, yeah. you know, in, in Oroville, there's no private property. Yeah. Um, I don't think Wageningen would exist. Uh, and a lot of these buildings that we see around here, they're very mainstream property <laughs> business yeah. models behind yeah. it and returns on investment yeah. and you sell and you buy and blah, blah. I think it's a big difference. This question was more about the community. All right. Uh, if you would compare the student community in Wageningen and some of the researchers and the Oroville uh, community. Mm. But yeah, you I think at a superficial level probably, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, people like yoga and yeah. organic yeah. food. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so it started 50 years ago and it was a wasteland. But what was there before, like uh, some farming? Uh, Company Before the wasteland, um, I don't know actually. Yeah. I didn't do research yeah. on the, the longer term history. Yeah. I just saw the pictures of 50 years ago and yeah. there really wasn't a tree. And then the stories that people say that you know there was this one palm tree and then from here you could see the ocean and people would tie leaves around their feet because they had to run to the next shady spot and otherwise mm. it would burn their feet. Wow. Um, 
so yes, uh, and this, the soil is kind of a, a laterite, so if it gets mm. compacted, it, it turns almost into stone. Mm. Um, so it's true, you know, when you have these, these uh, tipping points, no? once, yeah. you, once you change the environment enough, then there's a kind of irreversible yeah. damage, which in this case proved to be not so irreversible, mm. but it requires a lot of hard work. Um, yeah. So they tipped holes and duck trees and watered them and uh, it took decades but right now it's forest so it is uh, around 20 square kilometers the site mm. and around uh, two and a half thousand people live there mm. uh, around a thousand indians and the rest are from 140 150 nations from all over uh, the world no i don't think that much i think it's about 50. 50 yeah. oh it's uh, okay mm. okay and uh, you said that uh, there is uh, no ownership of fixed assets. Yeah, I mean, you can yeah. own your T-shirt, your yeah. T-shirt, <laughs> or your yeah. equipment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And there is no no money, or there is money. It w I was a bit confused. For example, do mm. you get a salary? Um, so if I work for um, something related directly to the community, mm. I will get what is called a maintenance. Mm. Uh, it's like a basic income mm -hmm. and part of that is in kind and part of it is in cash mm. um, so there is definitely money um, and I think the ultimate design is or aim is not to be completely without money it's just mm. to uh, to not let money rule your yeah. thinking yeah. and your decisions yeah. um, as they, they quote a lot of Sri Aurobindo, that's why it's called Auroville, yeah. after Sri Aurobindo, and he said that you know, money should not be the sovereign lord. Yeah. Um, and um, we are still working on, uh, on ways how to reduce the influence of money and monetary thinking. Yeah. yeah. And just to keep it as a tool. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But as I understood that uh, Auroville is originally uh, designed or the site was designed to host uh, up to 50,000 people mm. and uh, economically it's it's a it's a unit with its uh, surrounding so there is also cash flow yes. in and out to yeah, all of you yeah, yeah and yeah. would it be a reason to uh, to scale it up to 50,000 people or it's just uh, one opinion but what is your as an entrepreneur who is uh, working there uh, Right. I don't know as an entrepreneur if I have an opinion, but as a, as a resident, um, I think there can be a logic for different scales. Um, I think different social innovations require different uh, critical mass. Yeah. Um, for example, a healthcare system might work better with 10,000 people than with 2,000 because right now we have an issue if we have a few more you know, elderly uh, coming in and a few young people going out, then it quickly disrupts the balance. Um, whereas if you have a slightly bigger population, then you can be a bit more resilient. Um, and similarly, in terms of you know, all the jobs that need doing right now, we may have, I don't know, 500, 600 really active adults. And it's just too much to handle. You know, mm. we, have, we need to manage all sectors, whether it is healthcare, education, food, governance, infrastructure, housing, um, culture, mm. media, you name it, everything needs to be 
managed and um, imagined and um, to do that well and innovative and keep learning you need manpower you need yeah. a certain critical mass um, and some things work better at a small scale and some things work better at a medium and large scale I think we're still learning about what is the appropriate scale for different types of um, social systems yeah. yes it's a difficult question I don't think that 50,000 is great for all purposes um, um, but it's um, yeah the, one of the reasons why people say 50,000 is because uh, they also believe that urban uh, problems right now are mm. quite urgent in mm. global society and if you come with um, solution and you've scaled it up to like 5,000 then you know any town like Wageningen maybe it's 20,000 they'll look at it and say well it's not relevant for me because I'm so big and mm. um, whereas if you have 50,000 then you can uh, you can engage urban communities across the globe um, and that might be very important hmm. it's interesting that you say that you uh, highlight the the characteristics of uh, Auroville as an urban project hmm. because uh, I'm a bit uh, skeptical about the urban development hmm. and uh, and the smart cities and all of these of these ideas uh, I see maybe because just my rural development background that uh, it's like uh, the cities are pretty much the ultimate platform of uh, power and, co and, and control mm. but maybe uh, with the policy making what happens in Auroville it can be another other way of uh, governing cities other no, I definitely I think uh, 20 million is impossible yeah. I just went to Tehran yeah. I don't think you can have a sustainable city of 20 million people but 50,000 is a different scale altogether yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's so not you, a city, it's a town. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned that uh, there are many Europeans uh, are living in uh, Auroville and of course uh, most of the people are... are uh, oh, I have one more question about Auroville. Do you have a daily routine there, uh, like a, a regular day, what you can shortly explain with meditation or any kind of uh, special elements that you might share? Mm. Um, well, uh, I, I think there's a lot of people with lots of different routines. Yeah. Um, me personally, um, I don't necessarily go and meditate that often, but um, a lot of people do, and for them it is uh, it's core to mm. everything. Um, so uh, my personal routine is often determined by my children hmm. i have two kids one is eight and one is 13 and they have schedules you now they might have swimming in the early morning and um or gymnastics um and then uh there are invariably lots of meetings because it's you know in a community-based environment everything needs to be decided collectively um, hmm. so that means lots of meetings um, and uh, and then there is uh, there's kind of a weekly routine I think which is um, which might be interesting to share so 
in, in my particular forest where I live, uh, Saturday is our forest work day where mm. we, we come together and do whatever is to be done, where fixing mm. a fence or you know planting new trees or whatnot. Um, and it ensures kind of a, a mental, you know, how say it, head-hand balance mm. uh, that you don't get too mental with all your yeah. meetings. Yeah, no um, motoric uh, skills. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in in my life, what's important is that we chose not to have a motorbike. Yeah. Practically everybody else motorcycles everywhere, and we are on a bicycle. Yeah. So that also ensures that I have enough uh, exercise. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and it's great. You know, we have cycle paths through the forest, so um, you you get to you know, see a lot of. Uh, of wildlife, snakes and birds and um, all kinds of creatures, um, and um, yeah, I think many families have a weekly routine of at least going to the beach once a week. It's mm. two kilometers, mm. um, and the climate is tropical, so you need to cool down. <laughs> um, and um, what else is there? Yeah, then within these different gatherings. What at least what I try to do is uh, be involved in projects that feed me personally, yeah. you know, are intellectually stimulating mm. and interesting, um, as well as do stuff which is relevant for the community. So it could be either involving in, in education or in alternative economic or governance, um, and then something ecological like with the forest. Yeah, um, yeah that's me. Um, but yeah, other people have different uh, priorities. I think for many people, uh, culture is really important. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of uh, activities going on in, in terms of learning different languages and learning mm -hmm. about different um, you know, art forms. Um, that's very active. Um, what else can we say about? routines I, I guess that they're all very diverse there's yeah. there's not really one you know there's, there's some people who, who like to sleep late and yeah. <laughs> get up late are there celebrations where the whole community is involved uh, like once a year to get uh, get together or there are quite a lot of rituals yeah, yeah. Um, so there is the the birthday of Orville in, in yeah. February yeah where um, there's a big amphitheater where thousands of people could sit together and there's a, um, a sunrise bonfire at five o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, and that's a big event. Then there are regular cultural events. Um, uh, often when kids are involved, it's a great way to bring mm. the community together. So if there's a musical, a theater production, uh, where kids are involved, hundreds and hundreds of people <coughs> show up. <coughs> and then there are, um, yeah, there is of course the, the social glue. Yeah, people mm. do shopping in the same place or they come together to have lunch in the same place. Mm. There's a lot of meeting mm. um, over there. And then every three years roughly we have kind of a introspection session mm. where hundreds of people sit together for three days, four days, five days to rehash you know mm. are we still on track yeah um yeah in maori it's called vanaga vanagam vanagam okay vanaga. i don't know in i think uh, vanaga 
Vanaga. Vanaga. It's this, these gatherings. Yeah, when they are just talking for days, uh, sometimes ah. without sleeping. Oh, yeah. right, right. So in, it's a. I just heard it. In Tamil, Vanakam, it means yeah. uh, hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. You mentioned, uh, or we, we talked about that there are many, many nationalities there and a lot of Western European people. And of course, they also want to keep the, the connection with their roots. Yeah. Uh, and they want to travel. And as we know, that uh, traveling by, by, by plane is not the uh, greenest. And uh, your new project, the Green Silk Road, to create a, a green uh, corridor mm. between India and Europe mm. is pretty much related to that. And uh, I read somewhere in so some of your articles that actually 30 years ago that was still an existing uh, and very most popular way to get to India. Yeah, it was a hippie trail, no? Yeah. And it, it went over uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could hop on, hop on a magic bus in uh, Amsterdam and one month later you'll be in Delhi. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was your first... first. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I was not uh, old enough. I think it's yeah. more like 40 years ago yeah, okay. already. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so I'd like to revive that route. Yeah. Um, it's a little tricky because there's uh, the Middle East in the middle. Yeah. Um, and politically speaking, um, that's... Um, yeah, it's challenging to go through um, those countries, but um, so we're trying and uh, we like to invite anybody who wants to come to India to do it overland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, especially if you apply for your visas from the West, I think it's a lot easier than mm -hmm. uh, we tried from the East and um, um, we managed most of it. So, I mean, I'm here. so. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get stuck halfway, but we didn't get a visa for Pakistan, hmm. um, and I I don't know that it's gonna be really easy to uh, to do that in the future. So right now I'm thinking of maybe a route around Pakistan, like mm -hmm. by boat from Mumbai to Dubai, mm -hmm. and then from the Gulf you can take a ferry to Iran, and then from there it's all. Uh, easy. Yeah. So in Iran, public transport is amazing. They have uh, amazing buses, mm. <coughs> and um, then you can go by bus from Tabriz to Van, and then you're in Turkey, and then again there are amazing buses. Um, so this time it took me about five weeks, but it was also because I was taking it really slow, and I spent yeah. lots of time to visit intentional communities along the way, and yeah. uh, schools. And we did some environmental education activities with kids. Um, yeah, and it was very interesting. And I think it could be, um, you know, it could be a very educational trip also for, yeah. for families. So I do intend to bring my kids next time up, um, up and down. Um, and then we can form our lives around it. You know, I mean, yeah. If I talk to people, they say, well, five weeks, I don't have mm. that much holiday and mm. you know, it's just too much time. Um, my hunch is that uh, we can redesign uh, whatever keeps, whatever defines our holiday. You know, yeah. if it's your job, you can redesign your job. If it's your house, you can redesign yeah. your, your house. Um, if we are serious about climate change, I think we should seriously look for alternatives uh, to flying 
and uh, we need to walk our talk. You know, you know, it's it's the entrepreneurial way. You know, yeah. Why would you take matters into your own hand when it comes to food or clothing, but not yeah. transport? Yeah. And um, yeah, we know that flying is uh, screwing up the planet in in ways that we're still learning about. Like I did a I did a course with with kids in our primary school on climate change, and we realized that cloud formation, <clears throat> for example, high clouds, um, we haven't really understood yet how that works. But early signs are that it's um, more devastating than we thought. Yeah. yeah. And there are very few clues that say, oh, actually, it's less uh, risky. Yeah. And you know, we're talking here in Holland about uh, enlarging Schiphol and building mm. a new airport in Lelystad. And <clears throat> it's um, exactly the opposite and of what we the, should be doing. The problem is with the transportation, like uh, that it has been corrupted for more than 100 years heavily. Mm. And uh, if we see that Tesla is coming now with their electric cars, nice, but there were already cars 150 years ago. Mm. And uh, now again, the blame and, and every everything, the, the costs or the difficulties go back to the average people who were totally uh, kind of uh, driven by, by this very one line, one, uh, one-way technological track since the 19th century mm. since yeah and uh, yeah so that's why it's like okay what should I believe or what should I do I mean uh, it's so difficult mm. I don't think it's difficult at all I mean we, we know that flying is way more polluting than any other means of transport we, the we science know. is not very difficult. What is difficult is adapting your behavior. Yeah. 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 But I don't think we need to uh, learn more about why it's a problem. Yeah, it's, it's not about the problem side, but uh, the demand part is also generated pretty, pretty uh, aggressively. Mm. So there are forces, marketing, whatever, course, traveling. So. Uh, for example, my main focus is on food, mm, mm. and uh, I just heard a couple of weeks ago that uh, the vegan community, who are conscious in Amsterdam, for example, mm. that mm. they are so unconscious about uh, air miles right. and stuff. Yeah, and like, uh, and then it's again the blame. However, we would we should be happy that at least someone is taking care of what they eat mm. and uh, shift the market on one side. But if you again put a group of people in a, in a cost, let's say, mm. that oh, you are not that, uh, that conscious, then yeah. So um, I'm saying that from all sides, we are so surrounded with these choices. And uh, yeah, this is just crazy because some maybe some people don't have five, five uh, weeks to go to India but maybe if they fly there and have a spiritual experience after two weeks with a very deep meditation they come back and gonna take their life a totally different route with mm. some impact mm. so that's that's the strange uh, part of it sure but I think it's it's uh, uh, dangerous to uh, go for like a uh, 
you know, this postmodern everything right. is relative mode, um, uh, because there are hard boundaries, right? right? There is there is a biophysical ecosystem which has limits, and we with our um, human imagination, we can like wish away those limits and say, "Oh yeah. no!" But maybe there is another hypothetical reason why I then now not have to change my behavior. Hmm. I mean, fin finally, uh, it's the reason why you know I prefer to believe that is because I'm making it easy for myself yeah. to then convince myself that oh, actually, it's fine. You but know, I don't need to take this complexity into account. Yeah. The reality is that it is extremely complex and yes we have to work on both the animal rights side and the carbon side and the water side and the social mm. side it's right if that's reality you know yeah. if um if we want to live this this new life with all these global connections and all yeah. this extra information that that we are unearthing yeah. we have to deal with it yeah it's, uh, it, it, it comes with all the rights of being a modern informed citizen uh, yeah. you know, the responsibility of uh, of choosing and doing less harm um, and I understand that it's exhausting um, you know just today I went shopping and uh, we did buy some non-organic meat and I was like oh my god should I now make a big issue out of this or you know where is the where is the kind of exactly boundary? that's that's what I'm talking about yeah. this these micro decisions but also the so um with the food I'm every day busy with the micro decisions and at some point it's just uh, you know with also also with clothing and mm. almost every all this equipment that we're using you know who committed suicide to make this microphone yeah so try to be conscious that's that's the that's the core message right uh, even if it's difficult if you if there is a way to to skip a flight but uh, go with uh, some other uh, ways of transport uh, choose that one mm. and yes and I think it's so try to act consciously you know? yeah. um, uh, you just said that no, no, we're becoming philosophical I think it's it's important to uh, to make the philosophical practical yeah and um, I think it's great the fact that we are in this really complex reality right now. It's a, everything is an opportunity. We can question, uh, you know, like this microphone. Everything which is directly <laughs> around us is an opportunity to learn more about the complex reality that we are a part of, and then learn more about how should how should we behave. And it's um, I think it's a uh, it's a privilege, and it's. Um, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. That you're saying that you know it can be exhausting. Yeah. Um, so let's make it not exhausting. Let's make yeah. it fun, and let's make it not so black and white. That you know, you uh, if you choose to be a conscious consumer yeah. or citizen, you then have to do everything perfectly. Or at least, if you are a tourist and you have a destination, then go there with a specific uh, purpose, not just to stick in an all-inclusive hotel for seven days. Yeah. Because then it's another way. Like uh, I really choose my destinations, why mm. I'm going with a with a purpose, mm. and then uh, there is another question: what way of traveling I'm going to choose. Mm. But it's uh, 
there is another thing this very touristic mindset just to go somewhere just to not be in your uh, environment and that's that's the very uh, interesting thing now it uh, plugs in the uh, green silk road that uh, it can be a touristic attraction on some level but more like the conscious tourism and uh, i had some guests already who who have been at the Santiago de Compostela, mm-hmm. which is a mm-hmm. pilgrimage, yeah. and I'm I'm wondering how the infrastructure could be built for this kind of masses of people, mm-hmm. because the tourism itself is also so uh, harmful for nature with all of these hotels and all of these stuff. And normally, when you leave your uh, normal environment as a traveler, you have super high costs, mm-hmm. and you are exposed to the sometimes not just the kindness mm-hmm. of the nice intentional communities but uh, other people who want to rip you off mm-hmm. so i'm no i'm just uh, i just want to drop this line or this uh, thought that maybe that kind of infrastructure what they have at the pilgrimage with this very low cost uh, mm-hmm. uh, accommodation mm-hmm. that would be maybe an idea to think about if we want to create this uh, this yeah, uh, let's do it. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody is welcome to yeah. co-create this yeah. route. Um, and uh, yeah, why does why does traveling have to be uh, you know, only a negative impact thing? It, it it can also be a positive thing. Of you bring something of your culture and something of the place that you visit. You take it along to the next yeah. uh, space. So I think the role of the outsider. Um, is potentially very beneficial and of course too many outsiders is also not healthy um, yeah. there has to be some kind of a balance um, um, but yeah it's, I, mean, I think it's I think it's early days I think um, you know 20 years from now it'd be great if we would have internship programs for example where people stay for six months or nine months or a year hmm. and they can really you know taste and smell something of the local context and then they can make more relevant and appropriate exchanges um, you know, often with this, this traveling it's just it's a lack of time you know yeah. everybody's in a hurry and therefore the exchanges don't really go deep enough yeah. Um, but yeah my dream of this green silk road is that it's more of a slow mm. <laughs> um, more deep kind of exchange nice yeah so thank you very much for all of your stories it was amazing to hear and to see that uh, there is enough because Wachama is originally wagoning and change makers and you are kind of uh, uh, marking all of the requirements to be a change maker (laughs) so you are the quintessential Wachama guest too (laughs) so thank you very much thank you Ciao, ciao. Say hi to the people. Hi to the people. <laughs> ciao, ciao. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>